Amen. All right, Acts 21, as a little aid to you to kind of get the picture of what we're going to be looking at today, um, I have a picture I'd like to put up. We're going to be looking at a story that takes place here on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. This is what the Temple Mount looked like very probably at the time of Paul. Um, as you can see here, this is the temple itself right here, the, this area only the priests could enter. This spot right here, and I know this is difficult for anybody in the video venue to see where my pointer is showing, but this spot right here is the, it, where only Jewish men could go. Only priests here, only Jewish men here. In here, uh, any Jew could be, but a Jewish woman could go no further than this area. And then this area out here, what was, it was what was referred to as the court of the Gentiles. Now the court of the Gentiles, anyone was welcome. Anybody could go to the court of the Gentiles. As a matter of fact, people, anybody was invited. But this was the place, if you'll remember when we were studying through the Gospels, or you've heard the story where Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers, and that they had turned it into a marketplace. They turned it into a place to, to basically rip off the, the Gentiles and the foreigners as they were coming in. Um, one last spot to point out, this is the Antonio Fortress. This is where the Roman soldiers were that will play a part in our story this morning. But all the way, see this little fence around here that went all the way around separating the court of the women from the court of the Gentiles were posted in both Greek and Latin signs all the way around there that said this. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught trespassing will bear personal responsibility for his ensuing death. Quite a welcome. <laughs> Basically saying, you're Gentile, you can come, be welcome, but do not cross this line. And if you do, you will be put to death and you'll bear your own responsibility. Now at this point in history, the Romans had removed the ability for anybody else to exercise capital punishment except themselves. Only Romans could execute capital punishment except in this instance. They respected the Jews' passion for this, <laughs> this line that cannot be crossed, that they allowed the Jews to execute anyone who crossed that line, any Gentile who went into the court of women past that point, including a Roman citizen. That's how much this was enforced at that time. So with that as a backdrop, let's begin as we continue our study in Acts 21 Remembering that Paul now has completed his third missionary journey. He is in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost. Many people had gathered there. Upwards of a couple of million people were in Jerusalem for this festival at this time. James had warned Paul saying that there are many Jewish believers now in the Lord Jesus, but there have been things that have been said about you, Paul, that people have believed that you have speak against the law, that you speak against Moses, that you speak against circumcision, you even speak against the temple. So they put this plan together and said, here's what you do. Take some of these men that need to complete a vow, you go with them, you pay their way, you do all of this stuff, and that'll show everybody that everything's good, this will work, trust us. We're going to see how that works out. Verse 27, when the seven days were almost over, that's the days of purification that we looked at last week, just finishing up verse 26. When the days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him, that's Paul, in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, come to our aid. 
This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law in this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the crowd was provoked, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once, he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains, and he began asking who he was and what he had done. Verse 34, but among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another, and when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he got to the stairs, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people kept following them, shouting, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the Assyrians out into the wilderness? But Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a, city, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. Quite a story unfolding in front of us. Again, this riot takes place and breaks out, and again, the, the main thing that is stirred up here is that Paul has brought a Gentile into the temple, and that's what was used to just spread this going and the riot that breaks out. It started, as we see back in verse 27, by Jews from Asia. Now, we've been introduced to these guys before, back in chapter 14, when we looked at Paul's first missionary journeys as he was heading out. And he was traveling through the cities, remember, of Antioch, Iconium, Lystra. By the time he got to Lystra, Jews from Antioch and Iconium had been following him because the, the, the gospel has been spreading and many people turning to Christ and these Jewish religious leaders are following him, spreading these lies about him in these places. And in Lystra even, he was stoned, carried out of town, presumed to be dead, if you'll remember that story. So here they are doing up again what they're doing. Notice again in 27, it says, they began to stir up all of the crowd. It's interesting when we understand that Greek word to stir up literally means to confuse or to confound. It is the exact same word that is used in verse 31 when it says that all of Jerusalem was in confusion. Now, a couple of things we need to understand about that. Again, this is done because Paul has been spreading the gospel, because the truth of how to have a, a, a relationship with your creator, with God Almighty, through the Lord Jesus, the only way that, that message is going out, people are embracing it, people are getting saved, and you know who hates that? The enemy, the devil, demonic forces. And so this, his, his desire, his, his way of doing things, he's the liar. He's the father of lies. It tells us that. Guys, confusion, wherever there is confusion, understand who, who is not the author of confusion. That's the Lord. God is not the author of confusion. God is the author of peace. 
So where we see confusion, we need to understand that that's a work of the enemy, trying to disrupt, trying to cause problems with what God is doing. Now, it's important when we look at this, and we see it quite frankly just laid out in perfect outline form for us here, the ingredients for confusion. Notice, first of all, gross exaggeration. Verse 28, he preaches to all men everywhere. All men everywhere. Now, that's quite an exaggeration. Guys, one of the big things that can cause confusion right out of the gate is exaggerating. I never exaggerate. Isn't it funny how, how often we can get sucked right into that and not think anything of it? I, it's been, when you, when I, because I knew that this was part of something I was going to talk about, I've noticed how many times just in the last few days I've exaggerated things. You just little things. You know, last night, Robin asked me if I had one of those sore throat lozenge things because I suck on those before I come up and talk. And I said, yeah, I got a ton of them right here. No, I actually have 25 or so here. <laughs> um, <laughs> But we have to be careful because in our way of trying to get our point across, isn't it easy to slip into exaggerating things, blowing things out of proportion? And here, that's what takes place here in order for them to cause this confusion. All men everywhere, a gross exaggeration, but followed by false accusations. He's telling all men everywhere, preaching against our people, against the law, and against this place, this place being the temple. Totally false. Absolutely untrue. We'll look at that a little bit later. Paul wasn't speaking against these things at all. He's very proud of his Jewish heritage. Very, he, he is a Jew. He, he, very proud of that. Loves, loves the law. He says if it weren't for the law, he wouldn't have found Christ. The temple, we'll see again later. He, he, he's gone to the temple. He's gone back to the temple, not doing this at all. Taking what he does say about that, as we'll look in a moment, and twisting it and turning it and those types of things, causing confusion. And the enemy using that to twist and to turn. But lastly, and what caused the total commotion, gross exaggeration, false accusations, yes, but biased assumptions. Notice this, and this is what, again, caused the whole riot and why I showed that to you earlier. It says, and besides, verse 28, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, in the Ephesian, in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul brought him to the temple. Well, we saw him walking around with a Greek in town. He must have brought him to the temple. Just, just going to assume that. We're just going to assume that because we've seen this, this is that. Or we're going to assume because we heard this, that this is what is behind all of that. And you know what happens when we assume, right? We're wrong most of the time. Well, what would you think I was going to say? <laughs> Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, said this, he who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. He goes on to say, the first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. And here's the thing about assuming. We take a little bit of information and we think with that little bit of information, we know everything there is to know. There's so many unknown Factors. Perhaps you've heard the story 
about this man who was a, a, a deacon in a church. His name was George, and just a giving, serving man. And he, one day he was going to help out and volunteer at the hospital, but there was no parking at the hospital. So he had to park in the parking lot next door, which happened to be a bar. And he had the only parking space was right in front of the front door. Well, the church gossip, Sarah, got a hold of that information, saw his car as she was driving by. And sure enough, that Sunday was telling everybody, man, George was at the bar on Wednesday. You know, he must be an alcoholic. Just going on and on and on all about that. And as George comes in, he starts hearing all of this. And George was a real quiet guy. So he didn't defend himself. He didn't do anything. But that night after the prayer meeting, he on his way home, he drove by Sarah's house and he pulled over, parked his truck there and walked home, left his truck there overnight. <laughs> we'll give just a little information and let everybody else draw their own conclusions. You see, the problem when that then comes to gossip or things that are spread is, guys, it can cause other people to stumble. That's what happens here. A bunch of people who had nothing against Paul, who had nothing against what was happening, who, who, who actually several of them, no doubt, even probably believers, but they hear this. And they're sucked right in. See, there's an interesting thing about information that is given. It's some, you know, the psychological studies that have been done. You believe what you are told about somebody. That person becomes that to you with the information you receive until it's proven otherwise. It's kind of like guilty until proven innocent. Guys, it should never be that way. It should never be that way. Matter of fact, Paul, when he's speaking to Titus, a young man who was pastoring a church, he writes him a letter, and in chapter 3 of Titus, he's saying, remind them, tell your people, remind them that they are to malign no one. No one. Don't speak evil of anybody. Be gentle and peaceable. But then he goes on to say, he says, show every consideration for all men. Show every consideration for all men. In other words, give everybody the benefit of the doubt. You don't just go off of assumptions because if I've heard this or I've seen this, I'm going to assume that they're, they're wicked and wretched. No, guys, we need to give the benefit of the doubt, especially to other believers, because we're all redeemed and righteous before the Lord. If we're going to assume anything, default to that. We see here the response that comes. And again, normal human response. But it even goes to a different level as this crowd starts to riot. It says that they are provoked. Interesting again, that word literally means to be moved away from. Moved away from being rational being responsible, thinking logically, and moving into irrational, impulsive behavior. I mean, the rational response would be, well, we better get the facts about this. But so quickly moving to the, who cares about the facts? He's guilty. <laughs> and the riot breaks out. Confusion. Enemy stirring it all up. Well, we even see... The Roman commander, 
his job, the one that's the one that's kind of the main character here from the Roman point of view, he he was one that oversaw thousands of soldiers, multiple centurions who oversaw hundreds, an individual centurion oversaw a hundred soldiers. This commander oversaw many centurions, so thousands of soldiers. He was the top guy there. And their job was to keep order, to keep things under wraps and hear this riot breaking out. So they step in. They even had to carry Paul away, lifting him up to carry him over to the steps that led up to the Antonio Fortress, that area I showed you a little bit earlier, carrying him up the stairs there. And it's interesting, the, this, so, this Roman leader is working on an assumption too, right? As, as Paul speaks to him in Greek, he goes, hang on a second, you're speaking Greek. You, so you're not that Egyptian dude I thought you were? He's just adding to the confusion. Well, notice Paul says in verse 39, I beg you, let me speak to the people. Verse 40 continues, when he had given him permission, Paul standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand, and when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, saying, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when they heard he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia and brought up in this city, in Jerusalem, educated by Gamaliel, who was the top rabbi there strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are here today. I persecuted this way, this, this movement. I persecuted those who followed Jesus. I persecuted them to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prison as also the high priest and the council of elders can testify. For them, from them, I, was, I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. Here we see Paul's first of five that are recorded for us in the book of Acts, his defenses, if you would. And that word defense there is the Greek word apologia, which where we get our word apologetics. And if you're not familiar with that term, as, as Christians, that is not apologizing for anything. That is making a defense or sharing with others why we believe what we believe. Making a stance for the truth that we hold in our hands in the word of God. He's, he's going to make an, a, de, a defense, if you would. He's going to share with them why it is he's willing to go through everything that he's going through. Now, Peter tells us as believers that we need to be ready to do what Paul is doing here in our text when he writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Always be ready to make a defense. Always be prepared. That's not just the Boy Scout motto. That's for us as Christians. Matter of fact, if anything, Boy Scouts stole it from us. Peter wrote that a long time before they started. 
Always be ready. Always be prepared. And there's a lot involved in that preparation, guys. It's, it's being ready and, and constantly revisiting in our own lives and in our own hearts what God did in our own lives. Who we were before our encounter with Jesus and who we are now. Being able to share that with anyone who might answer, why are you different? Why do you have joy in your life when you're facing the same circumstances I am and I'm struggling to, to even get by? How can you have this hope? Always be ready to give a defense. But it's not just being prepared with the ammunition. We need to be pre prepared and ready to use it. Just like, a, just like any weapon, it does you no good if you're not prepared to use it. I have a testimony, and I'm not afraid to use it. <laughs> but notice as Paul does here, first and foremost, this is so important as, as a challenge for us and something that we need to put there as something to look at for us. Notice the heart of Paul. Don't miss this. He wants to speak to the ones who were just lying about him and tried to kill him. Moments before, if the Romans didn't intervene, they would have killed him on the spot. They would have beaten him to death. And Paul now wants to address them and give a defense to them. And again, not to save his own skin. He was already rescued. The Romans were carrying him away to safety. But he said, stop. Let me talk to him. Not to save his skin, but by the chance that he might save some souls. His heart was for those that were, that were lost, misguided, that were, that were going. He knew that he was once like them. He shares that with them. I'm, I once once like you. I once persecuted this movement. I once wanted to stop anything that had to do with Jesus. But to share, giving, sharing this account for the hope that's in us, yet with gentleness and reverence. Notice again how he addresses them. He's not, he's not combative. He's not aggressive with them. Notice how he starts brethren and fathers. See, the goal isn't to prove himself right or to win an argument. It wasn't to stick it in their face. Nah, nah, you tried, look at, you know, I got all these Romans around me. No, his heart truly was for them. He'll later write to Timothy, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. Paul's not looking for a fight. He must be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Paul understood this as he's writing to Timothy. Here's the deal. They're in, they're in trapped by the devil. They are believing the lies of the enemy. And I have the truth. I have the way to set them free from that, that captivity. And it's through Jesus. And he's going to take every opportunity that he can to share the truth with anyone who will listen. And what a great, I mean, you just see this. He gets the opportunity, waves his hand, he starts speaking. A hush falls over. This isn't 10, 20 people. 
This is hundreds, if not thousands, of angry people that were trying to kill him a moment earlier. Now he has their undivided attention. He's seeing this as a great opportunity. He shares with them, again, I am a Jew. I grew up here, raised by Gamaliel, once persecuting this very, this very church, this, this movement, persecuting Jesus myself. And then notice here, verse 6, but. Here's where everything turns. But it happened that as I was on my way to Damascus with those letters to bring Christians back to Jerusalem, approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. But in that one moment, everything changed. Everything changed for Paul. He thought, it says he was zealous for God. He thought that he was doing the right thing. He was passionately pursuing this. And in it, as he will come to realize later, self-righteousness but in that moment, everything changed. What moment? He came face to face with Jesus. You see, Paul's story, as he lays it out for us here, is invaded by Jesus on the road to Damascus. He meets him face to face. And Jesus, as this happens, notice he says, Paul's response, who are you, Lord? Jesus had not yet identified himself, but Paul identified him, Lord. Whoever you are, I'm following you from now on. <laughs> and that'll happen. Not many of us will have that experience as Paul did, where a light that's so bright, I mean, we understand what a noonday sun is, right? How bright that is. Well, the light that Jesus put out when he stood before Paul made the sun look as, you know, just darkened the sun compared to that light. Paul said, who are you? I'm following you. Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And again, in that moment, Paul understood everything up to this point. I've been wrong. I've been wrong about everything. Paul later writes to the church in Philippi, you know, all of that stuff I used to count as so important, I count it as rubbish now compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He understood now, and this is the message that he's giving to the people. He's not speaking against being Jewish, against the law, or against the temple. He's very proud of being a Jew. He, he again, doesn't dismiss the law of Moses. It's the law that he realized, I can't keep. I need a Savior leading him to Jesus. It's the, it's the temple that he would go to and continue to pray. The point is, it, none of that can save you. And if you're here today, and you're basing your salvation on your family connections, that your parents are Christians, that your grandpa was a pastor, 
whatever kind of connection you might have and you're saying, well, I'm just going to ride that to heaven. That can't save you. The law can't save you. You can't say, you know what? I, I keep the law for the most part. I, you know what? Here's the kicker. I'm better than most people. Matter of fact, I'm better than everybody I know. That won't save you, even if it was true. <laughs> that can't save you. Tradition. Following church tradition that you grew up in. Or you might say, man, I come to church every week. I tithe more than 10%. I give more than that. I come to prayer meetings. I go to Bible studies. That can't save you. Only Jesus can save you. And that's what Paul's message is. He's not speaking against those things. He's just saying, don't put your faith in those things. Only Jesus can save you. And in this moment, on the road to Damascus, Paul came face to face with that truth. And he realized everything else to this point, I was wrong. Jesus, you are Lord. And I trust in you going forward. And from that, he says, what do you want me to do? That's the only logical response when Jesus invades our story. You're Lord now. What do you want me to do? Jesus' response will continue on to Damascus. There you'll get your sight back and you'll get more information. So Paul goes on to Damascus with one major change. Somebody else is in charge now. In verse 12, he says, A certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law, and well spoken of by all of the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time, I looked at him. And he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Make no mistake, in these words that Paul just said right there, he told everybody that was listening that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Notice he says, he goes to this guy, Ananias, a devout standard by the law, well spoken of by the Jews, and notice how he addresses him when he speaks of that. He says, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then when he says, you have seen the righteous one, right there, Paul is proclaiming, the one that I met on the road to Damascus, Jesus is the Messiah. He's making that very plain. And I make a point of that because the riot doesn't ensue here. We'll see in a moment what causes the riot to break out again. But he's making it very clear. And he said, he's appointed you, the God of our fathers has appointed you. And guys, as believers, all of those who have made Jesus our Lord, we have been appointed with the same things that Paul has been. Notice first, it says to know his will. We have all been appointed as believers, as followers of Jesus, to know his will, what he desires of us. The Bible is clear on certain things that were saved, that were spirit-filled, that were sanctified, that we serve, those types of things. But he will get very specific to us 
as we follow this through, to know his will. We've been appointed to see Jesus, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, as the author of Hebrews tells us. We continue to look to Jesus and to hear his voice, to hear his word. As we are reading his word and praying to him, we will hear as he directly speaks to us. It's his desire for us to know his specific will for us. But we have all also been appointed as Paul to be a witness. And that is to share our testimony as he is here. Ananias, why do you delay? You've received your sight. You've been appointed for this. What are you waiting for? Get up, get baptized, get busy. Verse 17, it happened when I returned to Jerusalem. Again, notice the crowd's still listening. This he's speaking now, this event that we look at in these next couple of verses that he shares happened a couple of years later. It happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple. There it is again. He's not speaking against the temple. He actually went to the temple to pray. We've seen the disciples doing that numerous times in the book of Acts. That was part of their regular thing when they're in Jerusalem. Continue to go to the temple and pray. And I fell into a trance, and I saw him saying to me, him, Jesus, saying to Paul in a trance as he's praying, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. And he, Jesus, said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Paul recounts an incident. Again, he's in the, pray, in the temple. He's praying. The Lord Jesus appears to him and gives him a direct command. He says, Paul, go. Get out of Jerusalem. Do it quickly because they will not receive what you have to say about me. They're not going to listen to you. Now, I find it interesting that Paul takes this opportunity to argue with Jesus. I don't know about you, but I'd like to think that, that tonight, when I'm t- having some quiet time and praying to the Lord, and Jesus appeared to me, and he told me to do something, I'd say, yes, sir. <laughs> I'd like to think that. <laughs> I don't know, but I'd like to think that. Paul says, though, Jesus says, you got to get out of here, Paul. They're not going to believe what you have to say about me. And Paul's like, "Uh, Jesus, you got to have this wrong. I mean, I am perfect for this job. You couldn't find anybody better suited for this ministry to talk to the Jews who don't believe in you because I was a Jew who didn't believe in you. I mean, Jesus, check it out. Come on. I mean, look at my credentials. Look Look at my resume. Let me just take a moment to interject in there. If, if that's your belief, if that's your heart, maybe not that exaggerated, but that, that you believe, man, God must want to use me in this because I am perfect for this job. I mean, I, I could do this with my eyes closed. He won't use you there. He's going to call you to a ministry that will stretch you beyond your capabilities. And you might say, why in the world would he do that if I can't do it? Because then you're going to have to rely on him. 
you're going to have to trust him, his power, his strength. And then give him all the glory. And I love this too, because Jesus isn't into debating. He's not into arguing, bantering back and forth. He just says, no, go. But here's the important part as the rest of our story unfolds. Notice he says where he tells him to go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Verse 22, they listened to him up until this statement. When he brought the Gentiles back into the picture, they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that they might find out the reason why they were shouting against him in that way. Remember when he addressed the commander, he addressed him in Greek, so he understood that. But when Paul started talking to the Hebrew or the crowd in a native Hebrew dialect, now all of a sudden the commander can't understand what he's saying. But he understands that there's something that Paul said that set the whole crowd off again. So he's saying, we got to get to the bottom of this. And their way of doing that was to stretch somebody out and scourge them, the cat of nine tails, ripping flesh off their body until they start talking. But, verse 25, when they stretched him out with the thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. The commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, But I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him, and the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and because he had put him in chains. But on the next day, verse 30, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. So illegal to scourge a Roman citizen, to crucify a Roman citizen. There were many things that as a Roman citizen you were exempt from. Also, being bound with chains like that without being condemned first, without having a trial. So a whole bunch of things were happening and when the commander found out about that, he's like, oh my goodness, we could be in huge trouble here. If you did scourge a Roman citizen, you could face execution for that. I mean, there was strict penalties against that. So all of this starting to unravel, they're like, okay, hang on, hang on, hang on. Let's back this thing out a little. And so they said, they decide to release Paul, but they still want to get to the bottom of this. So they set up another meeting now the next day where Paul will stand before the Jewish leaders and the Romans. And you're just gonna have to come back next time as we continue (laughs) looking into that. But, As you're closing your Bibles and we're preparing, we're going to finish with communion this morning. I want to go back again because I think the main focus anyway that I'd like you to take away from and that's just been again challenging me is guys, we are always, as Peter tells us, we are always to be ready to give an account. 
Again, I'll read the verse, 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Always ready to give an account for the hope that's in you, personally. We're not supposed to get into back and forth debates and arguments, wrangling over words, but we are supposed to give an account for the hope that is in us individually. And the key to that, guys, is to tell your story. Tell your story, what God has done in your life, how your life has been radically transformed, invaded by the Lord Jesus. We see here in Paul's story, Perhaps you can relate to that in such a way. You know, maybe you grew up in a, in a Christian home, grew up going to church, all of those types of things, and you had placed your trust in that. But you realized that you were still empty and still certain until you made Jesus Lord of your life and how that radically transformed your life. That's my story. That's, that's how it works for me. But you might be here today in a very different story. Say, yeah, I can't relate to that. I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't grow up in, in knowing the Lord Jesus. I grew up and there was drugs. There was all this kind of stuff. There's a, this, the story of the demoniac when Jesus encountered him. This man that was terrorizing the, the, the entire region that he lived in. And Jesus cast the demons out of him into the herd of pigs. You know the story. And the man said, Jesus, I want to follow you now. You've freed me. You've set me free. I want to follow right after you. And Jesus said, no, go back. Go back to your town. Go back to your village and tell everybody what I did for you. And that man's ministry was so effective. He went around and told everybody what had happened that by the next time Jesus came back, multitudes went out to see Jesus and to learn more about him. Tell your story. Tell your story. We were all trapped in our story as Paul was until Jesus invaded our story. And maybe you're here today and you're still stuck in your story. You don't know how to get out. You've tried all sorts of different ways. You've tried to fight, and, but you're still carrying the guilt and the shame of your sin. You know, you know, you, you, because you, you have the guilt. You can be free of that today. You could have your story radically changed, rewritten for all of, all of eternity, simply by making a choice and making Jesus Lord of your life here today. He wants to meet you right now, right here. You see, none of us are righteous enough. None of us can be good enough on our own. That's why we all need a Savior. And Jesus, God himself, knowing that, stepped off of his throne in heaven, and he was born a baby. That's what we celebrate this time of year. That's why it's so important. But that baby grew to be a man, and that man lived a perfect, sinless life, fully God and fully man, to be the mediator for us, to pay a penalty we couldn't pay. And he suffered and died on the cross and paid the full penalty for our sin. And if you've never made him Lord of your life, you've never accepted that free gift, I want to give you an opportunity to do that in just a moment. But for the rest of us, as we in a moment stand and, and sing and worship and prepare our hearts for communion, guys, I'm just struck again this week as just preparing for this and just blown away thinking through this whole season and all that it means.
that guys, we have something that we absolutely can hold on to, and that's hope. Giving a reason for the hope that is in us. And that hope is not like, again, worldly hope that, you know, that we're, we're really, really hoping that that takes place. No, biblical hope means assurance. We have assurance. We can be certain about our future because Jesus paid it all for us. We have that blessed assurance. And we worship him for that, amen? Would you please stand with me? Let's pray. And if that is you here this morning and you've never made that decision in your own life and in your own heart, personal decision to make Jesus Lord of your life, to receive the free gift that he paid for, for you, I want to invite you right now in your heart, you go before the Lord and you just pray earnestly from your heart and you say, God, I am a sinner. And I have put my faith in myself and my works and in other things. And I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of running. I know I still carry the guilt and the shame and I don't want it anymore. Jesus, I invite you into my heart right now to wash away all of my sin. And you might think that your sin is too great. No sin is too great. The perfect lamb of God was sacrificed and his blood is sufficient to wash away all sin. So no matter who you are, you simply say, God, would you come into my life? Jesus, would you take my sin away and give me that gift of eternal life? I want to know that assurance that they're talking about. I want to have that joy that I see in these people around me. I want to know for the first time in my life that I'm forgiven. If you pray that prayer from your heart, you ask Jesus into your life, that prayer is always answered in the affirmative. And Jesus, we as those who have been redeemed by you, we worship you now. We worship you for who you are and what you have done and all that is ours because of it. We thank you, Jesus.